Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. I'm here today with Lillian Henkan, who you might know better as Flex Mami. Lillian slash Lil slash Flex is a DJ slash TV host slash model slash influencer slash entrepreneur slash soon to be published author. She has an ever-expanding line of personal products, about a bazillion followers on social media, and a devoted fan base who look to her for inspiration and guidance. Lil, is there anything you cannot do? <laughs> uh, exercise, eat vegetables, <laughs> drink more than two glasses of water a day, uh, all the fundamental life basics. And so for that reason, I overcompensate exercise in other areas. <laughs> is definitely overrated. <laughs> We'll get to your overcompensation in other areas in a while. But first, let's go back to the very beginning. You were born in Australia, uh, grew up in Sydney's eastern suburbs. What sort of family did you grow up in? Who knows, right? (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in a single parent household with my amazing mum, Liz, that's what I call her, (laughs) and my two brothers. And over the course of my childhood, all the time I spent living in my family home, just a ton of cousins came through. So technically I lived with a ton of people at one point, but my immediate family is those four people. You've spoken a lot about your mum and she sounds excellent. What was her sort of parenting philosophy? What did she bring to the motherhood mix? I think she was really good at, I guess, keeping me in a safe environment that kind of protected me against the worst parts of the world, but giving me enough time and having enough discussions with me that I wasn't completely naive when I left. So conversations about, you know, race, my appearance, gender, how all of my different intersections would be um, experienced by the world outside of me. I definitely, we had those conversations. Did I comprehend them? Not quite, but she definitely did that. She had a good way of just being really honest with me, just about her and her lifestyle and her upbringing and her divorce and what it's like to be an immigrant and all of these things that I feel like a lot of parents would prefer not to discuss because it kind of humanises them in a way that maybe from authority perhaps. Exactly. And she was like, no, like you very much need to understand this. And I think it's done wonders for our relationship now because I still foresee her and respect her as a mother figure. But, you know, that's my bestie. Mm. You know, it's Liz, my bestie, and she's a wealth of knowledge. And she also regards me as a wealth of knowledge, which is a great, like, union. So good. So when she was talking to you about race and gender and privilege and all of that kind of stuff, what sort of stuff was she saying? Like what was... Because I can't imagine that there were too many African families in Sydney's eastern suburbs in the 90s and early 2000s. What what was she wanting to give to you that you could take into the world? Yeah, and look, it definitely wasn't nuanced. A lot of it was um, very one-dimensional. But Like, um, for example? For example, even us living in the eastern suburbs and not living in the western suburbs where a lot of the Ghanaian population would be. She wanted me to understand or to um, experience duality in a really literal sense. Like, who are you outside of this culture that you can lean on if things got too hard? You know, who are you in the context of people who aren't like you? Be free. I guess she also wanted me to perceive myself in a really literal sense. And then I don't know if everyone can relate to this, but when you're around people who come from the same culture as you, you don't have to provide context for yourself. You don't have to articulate, communicate. You can just be and it's accepted and it's very loving. That's community, right? Mm. But outside of that environment, when you have to start 
creating context for yourself, that's really tricky if you've never done it before. So she did that with a lot of intention. When she talked to me about race, I definitely could not comprehend because she would say things to me like, you know, you're so Australian. Like, oh, I tried, but what can I do? The Ghanaian just isn't coming through. And I'd be like, I'm trying. Like, but there's no one to practice speaking the language with. And I'm a picky eater. So maybe I don't want to eat tripe and liver. Like, I'm trying. <laughs> and she's like, you, you'll get it. You'll get it. But I think she struggled with finding a balance of letting me know that racism is real, but also not wanting to cloud my judgment or cloud my experiences with other people. And or freak you out about the world before you were even in out. it. So it was good because once things clicked, I was like, oh, you did say something about that. Like mm. the classic rhetoric of like, you are going to have to overcompensate. You are going to have to work two times harder. You are going to have to put a lot of context for yourself. People are going to ask you things about where you're from. Why does your hair look like that? Why do you speak English like the way you do? How are you born here? And I'm like, aren't these normal questions? And she's like, for some. <laughs> did your mother instill in you a sort of sense of what it meant to be Ghanaian or did you went back to, to Ghana relatively regularly through your childhood? What was yeah. that experience like? How did you contextualise that? I feel as though she, when we went there, it was probably like every five years up until 16 or 17. And she really wanted us to feel just embraced by the culture. I went to school there briefly. I learned language. I knew how to read. But I think what she didn't anticipate is that going there, being an Australian-born Ghanaian person, I just stood out like a sore thumb. I couldn't help it even if I wanted to. So I was never going to have an authentic experience. I was never going to be treated like one of. Um, but she wanted to make it a point that I understood what my life could have been like if I wasn't here, you know, and what people my age had to live like. And she's like, you know, you do realise if you weren't here, you'd be waking up at 4am and going to a well and putting water on your head and bringing it back for your siblings and then feeding... And I was like, this is a lot. And she's like, but it's fun because everybody does it. It's not as though you're living a life of suffering. This is just how we are. But I also think what she did a really good job at is explaining that outside of this really like homogenous Australian culture or how I perceived it when I was younger. She's like, you know, there are other places where people like wake up and they're super grateful and they enjoy themselves and they dance and they make jokes and that's that's it. And I was like, really? They don't like, they don't, they don't want to leave. She's like, no, some people just love their lives. Like while you register it as poverty, they don't because like this is their existence and from where they're standing, it's perfect. And everything's a comparison really, right? isn't it? It's all you relative. Yeah. Did you have fun at school? I did. <laughs> I really did have fun at school. Okay. This is how we paint a picture. I wasn't like a geek. I wasn't like super creative. I wasn't the smartest person, but I was friends with everyone. And I was a very actively uh, um, participant in class. I was always putting my hand up. I was that person. And I enjoyed myself up until the point where I recognized that like marks mattered. Like year 12, I was like, hold on a second. And you chose not to go to uni, right? Well, I technically went to TAFE and private college and dropped out twice. Mm -hmm. So that was PR and fashion business, yeah. is that right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've sort of stayed in PR and fashion in kind of various ways, though, if you want to get tangential about it. Mm. What was it about those two sort of careers or those two ideas that attracted you? Well, 
The PR one, to be honest, I was watching reality TV. I was watching The Hills. I feel like my best ideas come from reality TV. You know, <laughs> and I was like, this looks great to me. They get to dress up. They get to talk for a living. And somehow they're all really successful. Um, and it's, I feel like it suits me. I think similarly fashion, people like to assume that if you like to style yourself in a particular way, you must like fashion. The industry just isn't comparable. Like... Mm-hmm. I feel as though it's similar to DJing, actually. A lot of people who aren't in the industry have this opinion that you go there because you're really passionate about the craft and you want to um, you want to innovate or you want to try something new. When in reality, you learn the craft to find out how to sell to people who wouldn't wear what you wear. You, <laughs> you go to those environments to learn how to market to the mainstream, which is just not what I wanted to do. Mm. But again, I was naive. <laughs> but you sort of segued it around this point into DJing um, in a relatively non-conventional way. I mean, yeah. like you, you say that, you know, people assume that DJs are doing it because they're sort of deep passionate about, you know, yeah. music and mixing beats and all of that. And that wasn't your journey in at all, was it? No, not at all. Like with most things I like, I like them to a point, but it's all fleeting. But DJing in particular, I didn't go into the industry expecting to make a job out of it. It was a direct response from feeling like the real monotony of having a real job. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is not what I signed up for. So when I got into DJing, I actually went to the club to work as a door girl because I wanted a way to kind of like, you know, live an exciting lifestyle but also get paid at the same time because I was very money motivated. And So when you're a door girl, you're outside the club? You're outside the club. I didn't mind that because I don't drink. Like, I'm just here to look good, have a chat. You know, isn't that the cornerstone of my of my career, looking good, having chat? So that worked out really, really well for me. But when I met these promoters, I was asking them about their uh, business management and their PR. And they had no idea what I was talking about. And I was just like an overconfident young person who was like, I can do this for you. Like, I can help you. And so I started helping them with business management. And the first thing that I asked them was why they hire so many up and coming DJs for a time slot where people traditionally do not go to the club. I mean, pre-lockout, we weren't going to the club before midnight, you know, we might've stepped in at 11.45, but they were hiring DJs from nine to midnight. I was and like, paying them and money. paying them mm. so much money. And I was like, why don't you two just do it? Because it's your business and you can operate at a loss if you're not paying yourself. And they're like, yeah, it's not really our thing. And I was like, I'll do it. Because again, overconfident, you know, young adult. I was like, how hard could it be? It's a little bit hard. How did you learn? <laughs> like YouTube videos? Combination. YouTube videos, definitely. My brother um, is very music. My whole family is musically inclined. So he taught me, but then I soon realized I don't like being taught by men anything. I just can't do it. Uh, and my, I don't like being taught and by my brother my, too. Like, ugh. Yeah. Like, this is also why I didn't learn to drive until I was 26. I just don't want to be taught. I want to do it in a way that makes my most sense. Unfortunately, uh, figuring out how to drive on the fly is actually no, illegal. It's, it's illegal, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so it's a combination of that. And I think, again, because... It all goes back to the way I looked and the way I was presenting myself. I was offered gigs straight away. So what do you mean the way that you look and the way that you presented yourself? Well, I feel as though at that point in time where club kids were a thing, um, if you dressed in a very extra 
avant-garde way, you were positioned as a bit of a, a club socialite mm-hmm. where people wanted to know you, wanted to connect with you to potentially get in free or to get club perks. And so because that was how I was positioned and I knew people who were positioned that way as well, it just became a um, almost like I was an added value. And there aren't that many female DJs. I mean, that's changing a little bit, but mm-hmm. I, I imagine that you were one of the few when you started out. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it was a good time. The, the conversation at that point was like, abolish the boys club, women mm-hmm. in creativity. And I just so happened to be there. Right place, right time. So you were DJing sort of for bigger and bigger events and for more and more money over this period. And so the day job kind of got got kicked to the side at that point, right? Yeah. But then there were sort of other things like hustles that were beginning to pop up. So, so what other stuff did you start cultivating? Yeah, I guess once I had made that transition to full-time PR to full-time DJ, I felt invincible. I was mm. like, is this what you got to do? Just like put yourself out there, ask some questions. Not quite, but yes, quite. And so I decided that I would work in radio because you could use the same skills. And so I ended up volunteering at FBI and then they'd offered me a show, which was awesome and really fun. But again, I was not very aware of what the job was to be a radio host. And for listeners outside of Sydney, FBI is a community radio station here. And I guess I was given that opportunity with the assumption that music was my number one passion and I was sent here from a distant planet to give people the gift of good tunes. And it just wasn't that deep to me. And so I remember I was like, you know, I would love to be a TV presenter. That could be fun. Again, like I didn't have any connections or anything. I didn't really have an in, but I do remember what had happened was MTV had contacted me for, uh, not even MTV, a freelancer for MTV had contacted me for a feature one of those it girl features like how does how does she do it and what is what is a day in her life like Um, and that feature never happened the freelancer quit and got a different job but I had asked her if she'd put me in contact with someone who works at MTV and she did and I just sent them an email I was like hey I would love to be a TV presenter is probably just as just as basic as that like you know what is the process and they were like actually we do need someone who has like a music background or whatever, who was interested in music and entertainment and pop culture. And I was like, I guess it's me, you know, like, but again, like I did not have the skills and of all the people who would have applied, there'd be a ton more who were far more appropriate. And then I guess the next point in that time was conversations about showreels that I did not have, but I was confident that if I was able to step into the room, I'd be able to to do the job. And I feel like it's this adolescent or like young adult hubris that got me to a lot of places because I feel as though when I tell these stories everyone's like so you just have to be confident and I'm like no I applied myself <laughs> like I didn't just like send the email and not do anything about it they said show reels I was like well let me make a show reel you know let me start creating content on the side of content I think would uh suit well for that platform let me start creating the content i recognize that they want to see so when I step into that room I'm far more equipped and so it was it was the combination of both but I feel as though I forget to let people know I assume it's implied that I also worked in addition to inviting myself into these spaces. You were a self-taught DJ, self-taught influencer really Mm. you know self-taught kind of everything and I was Reading something that you'd said at some point, which is the only things that people know about you is what you convince them to be true. Mm. How do you kind of put that into practice as a sort of life philosophy? Is that a life philosophy? 
Yeah, I guess so. Mm. Because I feel as though I've always felt like I had some kind of permission to be special, to be significant. And that comes from my mum. She definitely instilled that in me like so much earlier than I recognised. Like I remember she used to tell me when I started high school, she was like, look, you're going to come across a lot of people who don't know you, who might not like you, and that's okay. But if anybody's mean to you, you tell them that you're my daughter and they can't say those things to you. And so what would I do if someone was mean to me? Well, my mom told me that you can't say those things to me because I'm special. Lo and behold, it works. I like, I'm astonished that that flew in an Australian <laughs> high school just quietly. But it worked. And even things like... It must she, have been the delivery. <laughs> it must have been. And even things like... You know, I remember I used to really hate my gap tooth and she was like, no, it's really great. Like, you can't get it close. No, you're not getting braces. But she went out of her way to go to the dentist and get a gap drilled into her tooth because she's like, you are so special. I'd want to be just like you if I was your age. So, like, if this is, like, the rhetoric that's orbiting around my mind, I just feel like the rest of the world had to catch up. Like, of course I could walk into a space and say, I would love to work here. Of course I would decide that I too can be an influencer. I'm interesting. Of course. Like, it all made sense to me. And so I try and remind myself that so much of my, almost like so much of the insecurity I might have to not feel worthy enough to do things is completely eliminated when I recognize that like, I know a ton of people who are perceived as being really great and actually really terrible at what they do. Or I know a ton of people who are perceived to be um, super talented, but they're only talented due to the people they keep around them. And the and the converse of that is all the people that you know who are amazing, exactly, but don't have but any don't capacity have... to tell people about that. Exactly. So, yeah. One of the hallmarks of your social media is the connection that you have with your audience and the kind of investment that you make in that, I think. I imagine that it's a huge time investment, mm. giving back the amount that you do to the people that reach out to you on social media. Does that also come with trolling? Is that something that you experience or...? No, I don't really get trolling, which is good. Yeah. So I don't, uh, there's no unsolicited, you know, um, sexual pictures. There's none of that stuff. The only thing that would be closest to trolling, which is, isn't even in that category, but people who are drawn to me from a specific arena. So they might have heard me on a podcast talking about race and identity. They'll come on the platform and be like, why aren't you talking just about that? I came here for this. Why are you talking about this? Or why aren't you having a big discussion today? Why are you talking about this TV show? This is such, this is such a silly thing to use your platform for. And I was like, babes, I'm just here for a good time. Like, I'm here to have a bit of fun. This platform, I built it purely because I had to. It was like out of obligation. But now that I have it, I'm going to use it how I'd like to use it. It's interesting too because what that suggests is that you can only be serious or frivolous. There yes. isn't any kind of opportunity to jump between the two camps and be authentic in both Exactly. Sides. I mean, you write on your website that you're passionate about bringing conversations about identity and intersectionality to mainstream environments. Mm. Why do you think that's important? And do you think in a way you're well-equipped to do that because you are also having those broader, those conversations about all sorts of stuff? I think it's important to do this. And for me personally, because it impacts everything that I do. Like I cannot escape from those intersections. And so that passion, it didn't start out as a passion. It started out as an obligation, a necessity, a defense mechanism, a coping mechanism, a contextualizer, all of those things. Because I feel as though it wasn't until I, I got into this public figure land that I was inundated with all of these ideas about all of my identities mm -hmm. that I had to 
defend? Not necessarily defend, but um, it was more so like clearing up the confusion. There are a lot of like narratives that were being told that didn't align with how I was existing on the internet. Like for example, I used to write my captions in all capitals. It's, I'm quirky, it's a bit of fun, right? And this was five years ago. And so what would happen is articles would start popping up that was, would say things like, she writes in all caps to make space for herself in a male-dominated industry. And I was like, mm, it's just not that deep. Similarly, just like existing as an overweight person in media, everything's championing fat bodies and so-and-so. It's like, yeah, indirectly, but suddenly if I don't maintain this idea that I'm championing fat bodies, well, I'm anti-fat. And so, and then I'm like, well, no, that's not what's happening here. So it's having to constantly challenge the narratives when they get too far. It says a lot about minority identity as well mm -hmm. and expectations on minority identity. It's like, you know, if you are fat and working in fashion, then that's what you are about. You yeah. know, if you are black and working in media, then that is what that's you're it. about. You know, like if you're a woman in the music industry, that is what you are. Mm -hmm. like. And, and it's it's disappointing in a way that you can't, coexist as all of those things that's it as well as just being yourself but it does feel like we're at a kind of particular point in culture right um like it, it does feel like there's an awful lot of pressure on people to declare a position yeah around a lot of these things and you've spoken before about what you call performative activism mm. what do you mean by that and why do you think that that may or may not be a problem yeah, so I don't mind performative activism. So essentially it's this idea that people will start behaving in ways that um, signal that they are an ally, that they are virtuous, that they are good, that they are moral, that they can do and think the right thing, which is fantastic because it sets a precedent that that's important and it might uh, start like a snowball effect. But I think performative activism has become like the starting point and the end point for a lot of people. And so when I discuss it, I often have to remind people that when they are coming to me to perform blackness in a way that they resonate with or to perform womanhood in the way they resonate with or to perform fatness in the way they resonate with, you're asking me to perform an identity that doesn't work for me. Mm. And it's just, it's not what I'm here to do. And also these metrics that you're using to affirm that I am the right fat, the right black, the right woman, like what is that rooted in? Like, let us unpack that. But also I feel as though like, I don't want to be the person, the way I word it sometimes is like, if I get inundated with these comments, right, that are inherently harmful, then why am I the person who now has to like be the empathetic one who sits down and has the conversation in a way that's easy to understand and digestible and accessible, just far too much. And so I think when it comes to how people perceive me and my platform, when they're expecting me to assume the position, I don't think they recognize that they're performing that interaction because if you would really see me for what I am, you wouldn't need these very arbitrary metrics to confirm or affirm that like, yes, she is indeed the black person I thought she was. Like, who are you performing to? <laughs> who are you working for? <laughs> There's a huge amount of expectation there, yeah. isn't there? So how do you set boundaries? I'm working on it. I thought I was really good at setting boundaries until I was talking to my therapist about it and he told me this thing. 
maybe the cornerstone of my mentality is this overcoming. Like I must prove that I am able to do the hard thing, to do the difficult thing, to have the hard conversation, to like put myself in this position and, and take the brunt of it. And I thought the boundary setting was in the ability to recognize that it was difficult and overcome to set, you know, to say that like, this is, this is my threshold. I did the hard thing, which means that anything inside that boundary, I'm able to overcome. He was like, no, babes, that's not it. <laughs> you don't have to overcome it. You can know well within you that you have the capacity to do hard things and not do them. You don't have to um, open yourself up to hurt and harm to prove to people or to overcompensate and to signal that you too can do hard things. So yeah, I struggle with boundary setting on the internet because I recognize that it just is not a healthy place, especially for someone like me. I feel as though when I look at my non-black counterparts on the internet, I'm like, if only you knew, like you just get to be, like you get to say what you want, dress how you want, and it's not a reflection of you as a person. So yeah, boundary setting on the internet, I feel as though to create the best boundary, I would just need to not do this, which I would be happy to do when I've milked it dry. (laughs) But I am entitled to the perks of being here. So once there are no more perks, then I will happily go. I mean, can you imagine a day where there are going to be no more perks? Absolutely. When I think that the day bubble coming? is bursting. I feel as though... What, the internet bubble generally? Maybe not the internet bubble, but the being able to commodify yourself in the way that I do right. on the internet, I think that's bursting. I think I occupy a very particular space and I am unique in this space that I occupy, but I won't be for a long time. I think that now, like in 2021, when people express themselves and share their opinions on the internet, it's very common place that wasn't commonplace five years ago I was getting roasted five years ago for having thoughts on the internet so now everyone's catching up and everyone's like well I too can get paid for sharing a belief it's like yeah you can but it's going to get to the point where audiences don't care what you have to think because the way they project on people who do that won't be a good thing for a very long time are you worried about being cancelled no why not I rebuke it I will not allow it (laughs) (laughs) I mean most people who are don't control it yeah, but I think most people have been who've been cancelled have done terrible things, like mm. objectively terrible things, right? I'm not worried about being cancelled, but I'm definitely aware that the space I occupy on the internet right now is so favourable and that tide has to turn. It's not that I'm anticipating it, but I also feel as though why wouldn't that time come? It would be naive not to, not not even to prepare for it, but not to assume it's not coming. I think that if there ever comes a time where I do get cancelled and I think it's valid, I'll take the L and go. Mm. But I'm just not going to sit here and be like, oh, I wish I was a different person. I wish I could have done that differently. It is what it is. It happened. I'm so sorry. <laughs> One of the things you said before is um, when I noticed that people weren't thinking about me the way I was thinking about myself, my whole perspective changed. This is the best way I can explain it. When I was 18, if you had asked me what I cared about, I would have been like, mm, not much. I don't have many thoughts and of those thoughts I have, I don't feel entitled to express them. I don't think it's important that anybody know what my thoughts are. I don't want to have to challenge my beliefs or have to defend my beliefs. So it's just smooth brain, empty head. There's nothing up here. And I was quite happy with that because of the fact that nobody was asking me these important things anyway. It got to existing as a public figure where everyone's like, well, surely you should have a thought about that. Mm. And not only should you have the thought, it should be well 
well-informed. It should be rational. It should be justified. It should be able to be backed up by evidence, objective evidence outside of you. And suddenly I had to think like a lot about all of these things. And I, I guess that I sometimes think about this, like this being like affirmed by an industry or being affirmed by people. It's like every time I run into someone like let's say I'll go to an industry event and I'll run into someone and you would expect like a, an average green to be like, hey, how are you? Like, what have you been up to? No, somebody sees me like, they're like, oh my God, yes, queen, get it, hunty. And I'm like, which part of, okay, I see what's happening here. Well, they have relationships with you that you've got no, exactly, to do with, really. exactly. And I'm not in control of yeah. how they're perceiving me. So as soon as that came to mind, I was like, oh, this doesn't even matter. Mm. Like, and it took a lot of pressure off me as well, because I definitely come from that like model minority you know I must be better do better position myself as the best because if I don't I'm going to be a disappointed I'm going to be a disappointment to all the people who live in my intersections and now I'm like oh no I can just get on the internet and have a laugh and then log off and then go to bed and then wake up and go to and work and then be asleep and then be asleep <laughs> you know <laughs> You've spoken about a West African notion of big enjoyment. Mm. Big just enjoyment just does not compute. We're in Australia. It does not compute for Australians. Yeah, I'm it better at so, big guilt. Yeah, big <laughs> guilt, big shame, big fear, big insecurity, like big antagonist. Those things resonate really well. Big enjoyment is just a philosophy that your big moment might not ever come. Like you might not ever get to the point where you land and you arrive at the destination that is for you. So if that is the case, you need to savor like all of this now. You need to create moments in your life that replicates how you'd like to feel. And you need to be responsible for that. You need to hold accountability. Like you're entitled to pleasure. You're entitled to joy. Now, what does that look like? And I feel like it's super interesting because whenever I go to Ghana, it's like you get to the airport, you get out into the city and you're like, oh my goodness, like there is music everywhere. People dancing, people joking, people like running to compliment you, smooth skin, cocoa butter, God bless you. Like you cannot escape it. And like the way people just so quick to remind grumpy people that like we're all suffering babe like we get it but like on this end it could be fun it could be good I also think it's the difference between like well, not the difference but it's such a heavily religious culture that this like all-knowing faith in like God and you know the, the bigger picture and this will all be for something really fuels people to just like get through it and enjoy it like you know I, I get it, I live in poverty but God got me like I could be dead I couldn't like it's so hard to think about that in the context of an Australian culture because everyone's like no life is hard and there is no God and so you're like okay I'm so sorry I can't help you with this <laughs> like I didn't even know how to like reverse engineer this concept in a way that makes sense because I think especially in Australian culture there's always this like emphasis and justification for like bad things to separate yourself from that means you're being naive or like you're you're you like toxic positivity culture it's like no I can reconcile that life sucks but I also know I have agency to create moments that are joyful and I am entitled to that and I'm going to do it over here because if I do it in front of you it's going to be a problem <laughs> Well, Flex Mommy, I hope you continue to find big enjoyment for a long time yet. It's been such a pleasure talking <laughs> to you. you. So Thank much. you so much. <laughs> you can watch this talk, along with the others, on our video platform called Stream. You'll find the link in our show notes. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.
You can watch this talk, along with the others recorded at the All About Women Festival, on our video platform called Stream. You'll find the link in our show notes. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.